You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. We're facing an incredibly challenging issue right now in our society. As of the CDC's last report, over 95% of the folks who've lost their lives in association with SARS-CoV-2 had an average of four pre-existing chronic diseases and or comorbidities. The virus that's on everybody's mind seems to act as a trigger for these pre-existing chronic diseases and leading to far worse health outcomes for folks with pre-existing chronic diseases. The question is why? Why is this happening? What are the underlying mechanisms? And today we have one of the foremost experts in understanding what's happening behind the scenes with the human body, with our biology, and also what's happening behind the scenes with our treatment for these things and why time after time after time, they're not showing up to be as effective as what's promoted in major media. And I'm bringing this up specifically because a lot of folks don't realize that the message that they're receiving from our major media outlets is often in the same cookie cutter vanilla version. And prior to the pandemic, many folks, there was a trend down, and there are many studies on this now, a trend down in folks believing the media, believing the narrative that's pumped out through our major news networks. But thanks to the pandemic, a lot of folks have latched back onto it and really created this lifeline by paying attention to what's going on in the news and not understanding how seductive it can be. And when I say seductive, I mean that literally. Oftentimes, the news isn't giving you an unbiased, well-researched dissemination of data. Oftentimes, they're leveraging basic human psychology to really interact with parts of the brain that cause us to be illogical, that cause us to respond emotionally instead of rationally. And what I'm talking about is the interaction with more primitive parts of the human brain, like the amygdala, like the limbic system. And these are parts of the brain that are really more associated with survival of self, that are really triggered and manipulated very easily by fear and uncertainty. Now, these are hardwired responses. We evolved to have these protective mechanisms because we don't want to get any news or any data from our environment that could threaten our livelihood and not be able to respond. And so we have heightened senses and awareness in parts of our brain that are primed for that fear trigger. Not only does this lead to illogical reactions to what we see on the news, the thing is it's very difficult to turn it off. And I'm not talking about the TV. I'm talking about the fear response in the body. A study cited in the International Journal of Behavioral Medicine had people watched just 15 minutes of the news and found it directly increased levels of anxiety and total mood disturbance. The most shocking part is that even after distracting the participants with another activity after watching the news, they were still not able to return to their baseline levels of emotion they were at pre-watching the news. The news literally stuck with them and changed their mental an emotional state. And this process of inundating the public with fear has been 10X'd, 20X'd, 50X'd during this campaign, during this process in, in us dealing with this pandemic. And we have not responded oftentimes rationally and appropriately 
We've not responded in a way that's advantageous to real human health. We've not responded in a way for us to really focus on targeting our underlying susceptibilities and making sure that we're getting our citizens healthier, not just for this situation, but for the things that are imminent, that are surely to come. Because what we're experiencing right now is really a practice run. There are many other things that are coming down the pike here. And we need to accept this. I know that we're still in the midst of this and still seemingly coming out of it, but our society is changing in such a way, but we're not actually addressing our susceptibilities, changing in such a way that is making us more susceptible. Because right now, as a society, we are far sicker than we were prior to when the pandemic started. I'm not talking about viral infections. I'm talking about our underlying health that makes us so susceptible. Right now, we're more sedentary as a culture than we've ever been. Much more than prior to the pandemic. We're more sedentary. We're eating more processed foods. We're sleeping more erratically. We're more stressed, more driven by fear. And all of this is making us less human. And really taking away our ability to grow and adapt and to be the best version of ourselves, to be what we can really be as a species, as humanity. And so today's conversation is really about bringing us back in touch with that, but also looking at the darkness, all right? Taking a little bit of a look behind the curtain and see what's going on. Why is this happening? Who's making these decisions? Where is our news coming from? Because the reality is, as we're going to talk about here on this episode, now it's unfolding. As we're recording this episode, it's really finally coming forward that the pandemic that has shattered our reality, that has shaken our society to its core, that has taken countless lives, not just directly from the virus itself, but from the conditions of unemployment. A lot of folks don't realize that when we're unemployed, we don't just have higher rates of suicide. We have higher rates of having a heart attack, for example. We might see a bump up statistically of 50% greater incidence of having a heart attack when someone's not able to work. Not just from those issues, but also the exacerbation of our pre-existing chronic diseases. And those, we have no idea right now how bad these things are gonna be if we don't do something about it. We're gonna see heart disease rates shoot up. We already have. The latest report, if you look at the numbers coming from the CDC, for example, disclosed that we have an average of about 630,000 Americans lose their lives each year from heart disease in recent years. This past year, 2020, almost 700,000. But it's just a footnote. Nobody's talking about it. It's as if it doesn't exist because it just, it's, that's not the, the, the hottest thing. They've already tried to tackle heart disease and have failed miserably. So they're just not going to talk about it. We're just going to tackle this thing. And the reality is, how did this all happen? Because we're not just dying in regards to COVID-19 directly, but it's all the other ramifications. With heart disease numbers shooting up, for example, we're going to see higher rates of cancer. We're going to see higher rates of diabetes, obesity. The list goes on and on. It's all going to unfold. I'm not trying to be Miss Cleo and tell the fortune. All right, I'm not trying to, but it's imminent. It's, it's obvious. But the question is, why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen now? And now the message is finally coming forward. That was, unfortunately, I couldn't even really talk about this on the show because of the censorship in the beginning, but the data existed. I had incredibly distinguished researchers, you know, out of Stanford, 
out of Harvard, for example, reaching out after they went and broke it down and looked at the, the makeup of this virus and looking at statistics and epidemiology and all these different places and coming together and sending me data because they know that we have one of the strongest platforms for health in the United States. Wanting to get this information out that in fact, this virus that has come and shaken us to our core as a society is not something that's originating in nature. The likelihood of that is greatly diminished. And sharing the data that this was in fact something that originated in a lab. Now, this gets into the murky waters of, was it purposeful? Was it you know an accident? Those can be debatable, all right? But the probability is that this wasn't purposeful. It's just a nature of gain of function research and folks doing research on viruses and experimentations to make them more lethal, to make them more infectious. That type of work is being done in our world right now, right now. But it's done under the guise of being in an effort to protect us from these things. So let's make these viruses more infectious, more deadly, so that we can come up with some treatments for us and more drugs. So let's soup something up in a laboratory and then make something in the laboratory to treat the thing we make in the laboratory, all right? And it's all gonna turn out great. Now, there are multiple, multiple documented instances and our special guest today has outlined many of these in his book, but there's many more of these lab leaks taking place and people getting very sick and even dying, research or scientists in this getting out into the general public and stemming from working on these different viruses, bacteria, pathogens in the laboratory to make them more infectious. This isn't just some random far-fetched idea. This is something that has happened multiple times. And in fact, very likely happened in this instance. I don't want it to be this way. It would have been cool if it came from a bat, all right? Then we could just blame bats. Nobody even respects Batman that much as it is, all right? He's very disrespected in the, in the superhero category. So it's just like, okay, bats. Damn bats, stop eating bats. But the data is really coming forward. And what I'm going to play for you guys right now is coming from the CDC director himself at the time of the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic taking place. Now, he's not just going to say something. He knows things that the public at large does not know. And the crazy thing is, I put this out on media, first person to my knowledge, you know, on social media, and it made its rounds three months ago, as of when this is coming out, three months ago. But it's just like it just gets brushed under the table because there's multiple reasons why. But we'll talk about that in a moment. But first and foremost, I want you to hear from the former CDC director himself. So Dr. Robert Redfield, the former CDC director, is speaking out for the first time, saying publicly, where he believes the coronavirus that caused the pandemic came from. These extraordinary comments come in a new interview for a CNN documentary airing this weekend. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. And Sanjay, Dr. Redfield says he's giving his opinion, but I have to say, I think you're about to break some pretty significant news here. Yeah, I mean, this was this was extraordinary, John, for, for certain. He, he is the former CDC director. He has spent his entire career as a virologist. I interviewed all six of these doctors sort of in the form of an autopsy, really to sort of meticulously dissect exactly what had happened here. Uh, really no, no pre-agenda. Uh, Dr. Redfield, when we sat down to talk, 
Uh, he wanted to start at the beginning, uh, the origins of this virus, what he believed actually transpired. Take a listen. If I was to guess this virus started transmitting somewhere in September, October in Wuhan. September, October. That's my own view. It's an only opinion. I'm allowed to have opinions now. You know, I am of the point of view that I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was a, from a laboratory, um, you know, escaped. Uh, the other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. It's not unusual for respiratory pathogens that are being worked on in a laboratory to infect the laboratory worker. It is also not unusual for that type of research to be occurring in Wuhan. The city is a widely known center for viral studies in China, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has experimented extensively with bat coronaviruses. It is a remarkable conversation I, I feel like we're having here because you are the former CDC director and you were the director at the time this was all happening. For the first time, the former CDC director is stating publicly that he believes this pandemic started months earlier than we knew and that it originated not at a wet market, but inside a lab in China. These are two significant things to say, Dr. Redfield. That's not implying any intentionality, you know. It's my opinion, right? But I am a virologist. I have spent my life in virology. I do not believe this somehow came from a bat to a human and at that moment in time, the virus that came to the human became one of the most infectious viruses that we know in humanity for human-to-human -human transmission. Normally when a pathogen goes from a zoonotic to a human, it takes a while for it to figure out how to become more and more efficient in human-to-human -human transmission. I just don't think this makes biological sense. So in the lab, do you think that that process of becoming more efficient was happening? Is that what you were suggesting? Yeah, let's just say I have coronavirus that I'm working on. Most of us in the lab, we're trying to grow a virus. We try to help make it grow better and better and better and better and better and better so we can do experiments and figure out about it. Again, that was from the CDC director during the onset of the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Robert Redfield. Again, very prestigious, experienced immunologist himself and you would think that that would just be a shocker, right? That everybody would just be scurrying to figure out like, why is he saying this? Is this indeed the case? But I believe part of the reason why it didn't really make big waves at the time was that our citizens, unfortunately, we've really been pressed into a place of learned helplessness where we might not even care at this point where it came from. We're just dealing with the ramifications. We just want our life back. We just want people to be safe. So it could be that, this kind of fatigue from it all, right? And also it's still, part. another part of it can be that cognitive dissonance. It can be so difficult for us to believe that this information was censored, that our government, that our health experts would so readily ignore and push to the side the fact that this was coming from a laboratory, whether it's intentional because of the vested interest in that research continuing, whether it's because of possible criminal charges, because we're talking about trillions upon trillions upon trillions of, of dollars lost and millions of lives lost and the ramifications that that would have on government bodies and organizations. These are all reasons why this wouldn't just jump out as front page news. And I give a lot of credit 
when the news does something right, but truly today, it is the exception and not the rule. There are a tremendous amount of great reporters out there who are doing great work, and their work is often censored and blocked from getting published and or getting aired on television if it doesn't fit into the narrative, which, again, our treatment for this thing, wherever it's coming from, is still to find a pharmaceutical injunction that's magically going to save us. And so that media and health message is not about getting our citizens healthier. It's not about re removing the underlying causes that make us susceptible to these chronic infectious diseases, chronic diseases and infectious diseases. It's not about those things. It's about moving the needle forward for the people who are really working behind the scenes to give us the, the message and the news that we think, again, is unbiased news. Listen to this. I want you to think about and ask yourself, how can our major news networks be honest, unbiased, and efficacious when the industry itself receives billions of dollars each year from pharmaceutical companies? Every year, billions of dollars go into network media from pharmaceutical companies. They're paying the bills there. How on earth are they going to rival or have any negative stories around these pharmaceutical giants. It is so rare when it happens. And often when it happens, it's here today, gone today. It's not constantly getting run over and over and over again, like they do with so many other things to propagate fear. But it goes deeper than that. And this is a fact. Nearly every major news network in the United States shares at least one board member with at least one pharmaceutical company. I'll say that again. Nearly every major news network in the United States shares at least one board member with at least one pharmaceutical company. So who's controlling what you see and what you don't see? This is what I want to spark today. I just want to encourage us to, to have more rational thinking, to look at the bigger picture, not just the parts, but to see how some of these things are orchestrated. I wish it wasn't like this. I wish that our, our media was unbiased. There are so many good people in it. It's so difficult to not realize that you fall victim to the environment that you're in. You often don't know it's happening. So it's not about the individuals. It's not about the people. It's about the systems. It's about the things that are happening behind the scenes that are creating the environment where things like this are possible. And so again, I want you to ask yourself, how can any network go against the entities that are literally paying their bills? This is a blatant conflict of interest that puts censored versions of science on display for the public to consume. At no point should we as a people have allowed for science to be censored, for conversations around science to be censored by the public, not just the public, but also distinguished scientific community. So many prestigious, award-winning physicians and researchers have had their work censored and silenced repeatedly throughout this pandemic. And it's just been one flavor of information. But this is changing. And it's thanks to mediums like this. It's thanks to you. And it's thanks to people like our special guest, who is truly a pioneer in this field. And really paving the way and making it possible for big conversations, important conversations like this to reach the people who oftentimes wouldn't have access to it. 
So really excited about this and excited to share this conversation. And just for us to start thinking differently, to start to ask more questions. And again, to take a peek behind the scenes and just get a good look at some of the pieces and some of the things that might be going on, whether or not we agree with it and whether or not we want to believe it, but just for us to start to to, to, to chew on it a little bit and to ask more questions. Ultimately, that's what it's all about because at no point should any of us agree 100% with each other. That is a cult, all right? But we should definitely honor each other. We should definitely have compassion and perspective take. And most importantly, we should ask questions. This is a time to be more vigilant about questioning things. This is a time for us to be more vigilant about paying attention to where our news is coming from. This is a time for us to be more vigilant about looking at who's benefiting from these crises, looking at who's benefiting from all the changes that have taken place in our society, who's benefiting from this new massive campaign for every man, woman, and child to utilize a brand new experimental drug. Not to say that it can't be effective, but for us, we wanna carry a sense of sovereignty and of medical freedom. And most importantly, for us to be able to ask questions and to look at the data and understand it. True informed consent is when you understand that there is the possibility of these other things. Those, those other things are the things that we're not hearing about. We're not hearing about the damages being done. We're not hearing about the lives lost as a result of the new campaign, of the new medication. But not to say that there can't be benefit there, but that benefit needs to be weighed with a simple cost-benefit analysis. And for us to understand what is a true benefit and also what are the potential downsides. And even weighing that, what are the implications with this particular virus, knowing that it was possibly maybe even probably designed to be very virulent and very infectious and also deadly and really creating a trigger again that's most prominent in folks who have chronic pre-existing diseases. So weighing all of these pieces, like what is the best step to take here? And so we're going to dive in more on that today as well. So again, very, very excited to expand this conversation for us to continue to ask questions, to look at the technology that we're faced with, and to also ask the question, if this indeed did originate from a laboratory, when are we going to decide as a society that enough is enough, that this is no longer appropriate, that this is no longer going to be allowed, that this is no longer legal under any conditions, that we can have something, a quote, accident take place and harm billions of people? Not just directly, again, from the virus itself, but the economic ramifications, the education ramifications, the damage that's been done to our children. These are the questions to ask. And we have to keep everything on the table because science is never definitive. It's always evolving, always changing. And that's how we need to be. We need to be much more fluid and flexible in our thinking because at the end of the day, for all of us here, we wanna be empowered. We want to be educated and we want to be able to make decisions that are going to be advantageous for ourselves and our families. And for that to take place, we need to know the full story. We need to know more than just the very small targeted bit of data that gets disseminated to us through mainstream media. 
All right. So again, right now we're moving into a new paradigm. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of possibility, but we've got to take action. We've got to stop sitting on our hands. We've got to speak up. We've got to stand up. We've got to start making some smart decisions so that these things don't happen again. Because the track that we're on right now, it's just, again, this is going to just be a preview. It's just a warm up. I don't want to see a world like that. And I believe that we can change it. And so being that we're moving into summertime, we're now faced with an opportunity to extract more of this critical nutrient that is really showing over and over again in clinical trials to be a big player in reducing our susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 and just increasing our resiliency overall. And what I'm talking about is the D, all right, the vitamin D. Of course, we did a vitamin D masterclass, which we'll put for you in the show notes. If you haven't listened to that episode, we go through a tremendous amount of peer-reviewed evidence on that episode. And it's just a gang of fun. But one of the things for me that I keep coming back to is a 2010 report published in Genome Research. So this is a peer-reviewed publication really dedicated to looking at things that influence our genes. And what the study found was that vitamin D influences several hundred human genes, many of which control disease suppression or expression. Now, again, this data has been known for quite some time. This is 2010. Where are we at with the D today? Are we getting and giving enough of the, Never mind. So in the context of COVID, for example, this was a study published in the peer-reviewed journal Scientific Reports. And it took a set of people with confirmed cases of COVID-19 who had no symptoms at all. That's group A. And tested their vitamin D levels versus a group of people with COVID-19 who were suffering from severe symptoms which is group B. The scientists uncovered that the people with severe symptoms were significantly more deficient in vitamin D than the people without symptoms. The researchers stated that, quote, the fatality rate was high in the vitamin D deficient group B. Vitamin D level is markedly low in severe COVID-19 patients. An inflammatory response is high in vitamin D deficient COVID-19 patients. This all translates into increased mortality in vitamin D deficient COVID-19 patients, unquote. Now, this mirrors the conclusion of almost two dozen other peer-reviewed studies. And another study that I actually mentioned later in this episode, and this was published in the BMJ, affirms that vitamin D isn't just helpful in prevention, it can also be helpful in treatment. And this is a randomized placebo-controlled study that gave patients with SARS-CoV-2 short-term high-dose vitamin D for seven days and gave another group of SARS-CoV-2 patients, a placebo. Here's what they found. A greater proportion of vitamin D deficient individuals with SARS-CoV-2 infection turned SARS-CoV-2 negative faster with a significant decrease in inflammatory biomarkers when given high dose vitamin D3. Now this is a randomized controlled trial showing that it's effective in treatment. Now, of course, more research needs to be done, but this should still put up our antenna a little bit like Mantis. If you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, put your antennas up a little bit. Like, hey, wait a minute, what? Vitamin D? It's like, we've got some clinical evidence that it's effective in treatment? It's pretty amazing. You know, the study that I mentioned earlier, observational study. And this is the problem right now is that so much of the data that we're being 
disseminated and inundated with is based off of observational things, which can be accurate, absolutely can give us some good data, but they're open to massive biases, especially when we have a lot of other confounding factors. For example, with finding that vitamin D deficient folks were much more likely to have severe symptoms, what other things could be causative agents? And even if it's an observational study, they can do a good job of checking those other boxes. Like what about their pre-existing chronic disease status, age, the list goes on and on, right? Other things they can check off, but the studies that we share, very well done. And even if they're an observational study, being able to target and look at those confounding factors and then bring it to everybody so that we can make some intelligent decisions. So now that we're moving into summer, it's giving us more access to produce more vitamin D. It's free by interacting with the sun. And in the masterclass episode, in the vitamin D masterclass, we detail all because there is a lot of nuance there with how that process works and how effective is it based on the time of year, based on your location on the globe, so many other factors that we cover. But also, I mean, it's still a good idea for many of us because we're so deficient. Even if it's summertime, a lot of us aren't getting outside, aren't getting enough exposure to sunlight. And we might have inhibitory factors that we talk about in the episode as well. So D3 can be something advantageous to add, but you want to make sure that you're getting it from high quality sources, people with integrity. After I'm done with this episode, actually, one of the things that I do, you know, even if I'm doing speaking events and things like that, you know, speaking, doing a lot of recording, I have a little lozenge, but we want to upgrade the lozenge, all right? We want to upgrade. We don't just want to have the lozenge with all the sugar and all the crazy stuff that can exacerbate the problem. You know, if you're, if you're speaking a lot and you're just trying to soothe and relax and all that good stuff, but my favorite lozenge has no artificial ingredients, no chemicals, no additives, no fillers. It's called Bee Soothed Honey Lozenges. Not only does it use superfood honey, propolis, zinc, and vitamin D3, but it tastes good and it's also tested for many of the contaminants that's often found in honey that a lot of folks don't realize. And why propolis, for example, which is another very well-studied bee product, a study published in the peer-reviewed journal, Antiviral Chemistry and Chemotherapy, revealed that propolis has significant antiviral effects, specifically in reducing viral lung infections. All right, why? Why is propolis so remarkable like that? Well, a big part of the reason is that propolis has over 300 active compounds that we are aware of. The majority of these compounds are forms of antioxidants, specifically polyphenols, that are well-documented to reduce inflammation and fight disease. Even more specifically, polyphenols have been proven to inhibit the activity of coronaviruses. And this is according to recent data published in the peer-reviewed journal, Archives of Virology. All right, so propolis is about that life. Vitamin D3, about that life. Zinc, same thing, incredibly important for our immune system function. And the honey, by the way, even outside of cold and flu season, we should still have efficacious medicines to go to. I looked at the ingredients of one of the most popular conventional cough medicines. I, I just couldn't believe, because I haven't, I haven't looked at this stuff in, you know, almost two decades now. I haven't even looked at that stuff. But here's some of the ingredients. F, D, and C, blue, one. F, D, and C, red, 
number 40, flavor, high fructose corn syrup, propylene glycol, saccharin. Are you kidding me? At this point, how is this even, we can do better. Whereas even in the context of cough medicine, for example, we've got a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study revealed that honey was able to outperform placebo and significantly reduce cough frequency and severity and help to improve sleep quality at night. So for my family, not only do I love the bee-soothed honey lozenges, but I also love the bee-soothed cough syrup from Beekeepers Naturals. All right, pop over to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model. You get 15% off all of their incredible bee products. And also their bee smart nootropic is amazing. Absolutely amazing based on royal jelly. But definitely I love the bee soothed honey lozenges. That's something that I use after I'm recording and things of that nature. And it's just Great things to have in your superhero utility belt. So pop over there, check them out. Beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 15% off. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, This Podcast Saved My Life by TDHJR. Firstly, I'd like to say that I'm a person who will listen to a thousand episodes of a podcast and never leave a review. So the fact that I'm writing one, please believe it's real. The information and education that Sean shares on his podcast has truly been transformative for my life and family. I can only hope to be able to tell him in person one day to extend my gratitude and appreciation. My wife teases me sometimes because I can be caught frequently saying, Sean said on his podcast, in relation to health and wellness practices, game and life changer. Thank you so much, family. I appreciate that so, so very much. And listen, if you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. It means so very much. And truly, it shall be done. It shall be done. All of us connecting. And again, the world is changing a lot right now, but we can get it to change if we come together right now and stand up, speak up in a way that's advantageous, that pushes our culture forward, that helps to bring about and unfold more goodness than we've ever seen. This is a possibility. We can write that story but the time is now. And in that same vein, our special guest has been a pioneer, truly. When we're talking about the elite of the elite, the people who so many physicians have been turning to for their information, so many healthcare practitioners have been learning from. The craziest part about our special guest's work is that it's so well-cited. There's so much peer-reviewed data behind what he shares. But oftentimes it goes against the popular narrative. And so it can be a struggle to get the information out there. But even with that, it's become the top natural health site in the world, in the world. And our special guest today is an osteopathic physician, New York Times bestselling author, and recipient of multiple awards in the field of health. And his primary vision is to change the modern health paradigm by providing people with a valuable resource to help them to take control of their health. And I'm talking about none other than Dr. Joe Mercola. So let's jump into this conversation with the legend himself, Dr. Joseph Mercola. We have a living legend here on the Model Health Show today. Dr. Mercola, thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Awesome. Your book is phenomenal. 
It's required reading for this time in our lives. It's a useful resource. The truth about COVID-19. And I yeah. first want to ask you about underlying susceptibility to COVID-19. Because mm -hmm. in the book, you mentioned that COVID-19 really appears to be a trigger for underlying pre-existing chronic diseases. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's as most people are aware of now, you're really... Uh, only targeting very specific age groups, typically the elderly or the, the metabolically inflexible, mm -hmm. people who uh, are relatively insulin uh, resistant. So when you have that two com the combination, it makes you predisposed to getting COVID-19. And, and uh, another big variable is vitamin D sufficiency. Mm -hmm. So it's not a big issue as much now because we're entering summer, but generally 80% of the U.S. population is, has less than optimal levels of vitamin D. And it could be, because even if you were in the summer and you live in a place where the sun's available, most people are working. Yeah. So they're not outside, they're working inside and they're, and they're, they're not exposing their uh, skin to sun. I mean, if they do, they don't, you almost have to go outside in a bathing suit to get enough vitamin sun exposure to raise your vitamin D levels to healthy levels. And, and actually I used to write papers pretty regularly, but I hadn't written any this century until last year. I had a paper published on vitamin D reviewing the benefits of vitamin D mm. and susceptibility to COVID. And the evidence is pretty compelling. Yeah. So that's a big, big issue. And, yeah. There's and a ton of studies on it now. Time. Well, there, yeah, there even more. Uh, I haven't looked recently, but when I finished the paper, there weren't any published randomized control trials, which is or an RCT, which is the definitive proof, proof, quote unquote, because otherwise it's just correlation, and correlation doesn't prove causation. But there's a lot of strong suggestions that it's yeah. really useful. Precisely, precisely. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about that. Of course, the susceptibility, underlying susceptibility, and mm -hmm. also using it in treatment, high dose vitamin D. There was one study recently that was done. We'll put that up for everybody to see on the YouTube version. But I didn't even know you were working on that to put a paper out on it. That's great. Yeah, it got published last October in a fairly good peer-reviewed journal called Nutrients. Sweet, sweet. So this is obviously a big underlying issue, but also issues like obesity, mm -hmm. heart disease, mm -hmm. Diabetes, these things have been really exacerbated at a whole different level. Yeah, those, see, those are symptoms of an underlying issue, which mm -hmm. is like insulin resistance. And I believe uh, another variable that very few people talk about, even those who are relatively uh, well studied in natural medicine, would be this excess of a very specific type of fat, or fatty acid specifically called omega-6 fatty acid called linoleic acid. And uh, that's really common in vegetable oils. It's the most common fat in vegetable oils. And it, and it sort of, it's, it's a little bit of a propaganda there too, because people think vegetables and think it's vegetables are healthy. So vegetable oils have got to be even healthier, right? right? And this is the, the baloney that was thrown at the American public starting in the 50s with Ansel Keys. And when we had this massive transition to introducing all these vegetable oils into the diet. And actually it started in 1866, which all preceded Keys, but there was, when we actually gained the industrial capacity to, to extract these seed oils, and they're called vegetables, but they're more accurately called seed oils, like seeds and nuts. Um, and they're so cheap compared to healthy sources of fat that they're, in, they're put into everything. So if you're having processed food, dollar, dimes of dollars are going to have lots of vegetable oils in there. And that's probably the single most pernicious 
metabolic toxin that you could put into your body food wise mm. probably the overall one would be a covid vaccine <laughs> COVID <laughs> we'll get to that. shot we'll get to that shot but but these vegetable oils they are what cause the symptoms that you suggested were putting you at risk mm. heart disease cancer diabetes obesity degenerative brain disease alzheimer's so these are the the, the the, probably the single most important variable is your consumption of how much vegetable oils you're taking. So that's why you should not have any. It's an essential fat, essential means your body can't make it. But if you eat food, if you eat any food, you get enough vegetable. You get enough omega-6, yeah. linoleic acid. So anything else is excess and it's only going to make you worse and unhealthy. Because essentially... It increases oxidative stress in your body, and, okay. it, and it really disrupts your mitochondrial function, your body's, their mitochondria's ability to seamlessly generate uh, energy in the form of cellular energy in the form of ATP. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, with COVID-19, for example, we see this as this kind of inflammatory response the body has, and it has a tropism towards lung tissue, apparently, and it's a kind of a pro-inflammatory Thing. Yeah. And well, then we've got the pre-inflamed state of the body. And yeah. you're saying that vegetable oil consumption in our culture is a big reason behind it. Yeah, it, absolutely. And it, uh, it radically increases the risk for these inflammatory markers and these cytokines, mm. which are these inflammatory mediators, these little tiny proteins that, that cause these cascades of a whole wide variety of these uh, modulators of inflammation. Because inflammation isn't necessarily bad. You have, you have to have some. And that's the way your body fights infections. It fights it acutely with acute inf inflammatory processes. And, but the issue is when it gets chronic and then you throw acute on top of that and you've got a nightmare. And, and you get this spiraling cascade of biological challenges that your body just can't tolerate and just succumbs to it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the thing, of course, and you've been in this field leading the way for so, so long and for so many of us. Yeah. And so you can see a lot of this stuff coming and the underlying susceptibility. And in the book you talk about, and the numbers have even changed since then, but at the time, 94% mm -hmm. of folks who lost their lives in association with SARS-CoV-2 had an average of 2.6 pre-existing chronic diseases. I just checked the numbers today. 95% of folks who passed away with COVID-19 on the death certificate had an average of four additional causes of death and or pre-existing conditions. Yeah, and it's, it's just a mess. I mean, this whole thing has been a fabricated nightmare because even getting to the diagnosis of the disease, right? Mm. Um, it, you know, what is really more technically is a SARS-CoV-2 infection, but the COVID-19 is the side effects of that, having that infection. But they, they skewed, first of all, the, the test itself was, was incorrect because they were us, using something called a PCR test, yeah. and, and which amplifies the amount of material in there. In there. So they have, each amplification is called a, a CT or a cycle threshold. So they put the limit initially at 40, which is like thousands of times higher than it's supposed to be. So you get all these enormous amount of false positives. So you have all these people that are saying had the infection and dying because there was a number of people who died with the false positive test had nothing to do with the infection, but they were labeled as dying from that test. So probably more than likely, it's like, could be as many as twice as many people or half the people really didn't die of this. They died of something else, but they were, it was blaming SARS-CoV-2. 
which is a big challenge. Can you talk about that more? Because with the PCR test, basically with the cycles being that high, you could find pretty much some of anything and everything. Right. And even right. Kerry Mullins, the creator yeah, of he did, the PCR he, test. Who passed away like right as this thing started. But yeah, he, there's many videos of him. I would ask this to Kerry. How do they um, misuse PCR to estimate uh, all these so supposed free viral RNAs that may or may not be there? Uh, is this, um, I think misuse PCR is not quite, I don't think you can misuse PCR. No, the results, the interpretation of it. See, if you, if you, if you can say, if, if, if they wanted, if, if they could find this virus in you at all, and with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody. It starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to a, to something that you can really measure, which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. It's not an estimation. No, it's a real. It's a really quantitative thing. It How tells you it? something about nature and about what's there. But it 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 allows you to take a very minuscule amount of anything and make it measurable, and then talk about it in meetings and stuff like it is important. See that that that's not a misuse. That's just sort of a misinterpretation. PCR is separate from that. It's just a process that's used to make a whole lot of something out of something. That's what also, it is. Um, and it's, they, but it's not. It doesn't tell you that you're sick, and it doesn't tell you that the thing you ended up with really was going to hurt you or anything like that. What is it about humanity that that, that it wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen? You know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking. You know, he doesn't know anything really about anything, and I'd say that to his face. Nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope, and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy, and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, doesn't, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people, and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go, they change them when they want to, and they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people that pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem. That's a main problem, actually, with science, I'd say, in this century, because science is being judged by people. Funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Adam, and he got a Nobel Prize for that, so he wasn't some right. dumb cookie. Uh, he knew what he was talking about, and th this test was being abused or, or used for nefarious purposes to... to, to uh, essentially support the narrative. And, and interestingly, when Biden was inaugurated, <clears throat> I think third, January 23rd, third week of January, they changed the cycle threshold. They lowered it. Right. That's so, so funny so, they would do that with yeah. the timing. Yeah. And then even just interestingly now, even if you, the, the, you can't die. If you have 
uh, for, with, with the details. If you have a, a, a COVID injection. If you have you a COVID infection? Injection. 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 Uh -huh. I, I'm hesitant to call it a vaccine because it really isn't a vaccine. Okay. So we call injection or jab, you know, or, okay. or shot, but don't call it a vaccine because you're falling into their trap of get, getting sort of the, the benefit. I don't think there's much benefits of vaccine, but a lot of two people do believe it, you know, they especially ascribe to some of the, the first vaccines like smallpox and polio, which, you know, are almost universally agreed upon to have enormous public health benefit. But if you dive deep into it, I know that's not a topic for this conversation, but you could find a lot of flaws in those arguments. See, see in my, in my view, it's just, just coming, bringing this, this whole fundamentally flawed uh, perspective on how you treat disease or how you prevent disease. And they, the, anyone who's objectively studied this, and if you haven't, you can get the book because it goes into, it gives you sort of a jumpstart primer on some of the basics. But if you seriously and carefully evaluate it and, you, and you're not biased, you can't not reach any other conclusion that this whole thing was staged. It was absolutely staged. So let's talk about that because it it's really starts off when you talk about this in the book, there's some big issues around that. Like, let's talk about event 201, mm -hmm. for example. And by the way, when you hear about, I'm sure a lot of folks listening have heard about event 201, but it sounds like it's some fairy tale. It's a mythical thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I just went and looked at major news sites like, you know, Forbes, Business oh, yeah, Wire. Is... It was all there prior to the pandemic that this is a very real thing that it took was, place. It was a pretty big event. And like any big event, and if you've been been involved in, you know, you don't schedule those the week before, right? It takes about a year to plan something like that. So even though it was only about six weeks before the pandemic hit, uh, it was probably planned a year before. So what was it? It was in New York. It was sponsored by the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the John Blue, uh, the Bloomberg's, uh, John Hopkins School of Public Health. So you've got all these, you know, these forces that are really aligned with one specific narrative to support this whole pandemic. And they ran. It was basically a, 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 an exercise, a trial, and they. They had newscasts that said, what are we going to do? Or they talked about, what do, how, what do we do with the, the anti-vaxxers? And they talked about censorship. And they went through the whole drill. It was a drill. And they ran through it. And like, you know, it was six weeks before. So no one had heard of this event. And no one was was had any clue that this was coming. But six weeks later, we started to get a hint. And, the, you know, by 12 weeks later, it was full blown. Everyone knew this was an issue. Right. And they shut the whole darn world down. So what was the purpose of Event 201? What were they doing? It was a trial exercise to just make sure they fine-tuned their strategy. For coronavirus. They use a coronavirus they, 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 epidemic. They actually, it was, right. It was a lab bench exercise with the coronavirus. And they vehemently denied that it had anything to do with predicting this. It was just super just, coincidental. Yeah, just, just coincidental. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean. It, it, and it, it, can, it can be coincidental, you know. I'm no, here sure to, anything's possible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the, the heaven's advocate here. Um, but so w with that said, so we, we knew that there was a lot going on behind the scenes. Like what if this situation happens? How do we deal with getting a vaccine to market as soon as possible? But I think the big issue here is looking at truly, regardless of even this event tie-in, and this is a big issue today, and I know you see this, 
even we have reductionism, not just in medicine, but in our thinking. If we find one piece that doesn't fit, we negate the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So let's get to another piece and hopefully everybody can look at the big picture, which is now you wrote about this in the book and you've been talking about this since the beginning, that it was very unlikely that this was originated in nature. Oh, and yeah. now right here, as we're recording this, the CDC director at the time has come forward and said that he believes it Robert was Redfield, origin yeah. originated. And now there's just more and more data coming in about that. And it seemed very, very obvious at the beginning. It was very obvious. I mean, I did an interview with uh, Francis Boyle, who's a, an attorney who actually uh, wrote the biowarfare treaty that was signed by almost every country in the world. And if anyone's convicted under this treaty, uh, they actually go to prison for the rest of their life. He was, he's, rather than being executed, he's more, he just, He's a he's opposed to that, but anyway, I interviewed him in like February of 2020, and he he spelled out the full story that's just coming to be exposed now, like on Tucker Carlson and all these other sites, and even the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, that that are exposing the things that we were talking about over a year ago. That it was really really clear. The evidence was very strong that there there was gain of function research funded by the NIH to the tune of millions of dollars and spun off through this. The uh, other other front groups like Eco Health Alliance and and Peter Daysack, uh, and uh, interestingly, Daysack should be in prison too. I mean, this guy, but you know, he just they 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 they're so clever. They spun off these, uh, basically because they're so well planted in in the uh, academic field, they're able to get studies and letters published in very prestigious journals that are then adopted and, ex and accepted by the, the whole conventional community. So they, they spin off some lies. They spin off this paper and, and it sounds respectable. If you, and if you, but if you know any little bit of science, you can figure it out that it was just, it was just fatally flawed. It made no sense, but they got it published like in one of the most prestigious journals, nature. And, and this was the, 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 the paper that everyone, that all the journalists and everyone were pointing to, that this positive proof that this never was came out of the lab, but it, it it did come out of the lab. I mean, it's really obvious, and now they're they're accepting it. And and Fauci is, I think he's going to wind up in prison. I mean, there's a good chance unless you know Biden rescues him and gives him a pardon. But I mean, his they, they had a, a freedom of information from, I think BuzzFeed did it, and they have over 3,000 of his emails, and it was really, really clear that he was just lying. It was absolutely lying. Can you take a step back and, and tell everybody what gain of function is? Yeah, gain of function is a term used to describe techniques applied to vi viruses or infectious diseases to make them more infectious and more deadly. So, uh, you know, and the excuse for doing this research is that it's defensive that we want to develop the resources and the strategy to understand exactly what this is so we can defend against it. <laughs> but <laughs> that's just an excuse because they can use them for, for bio-warfare. And, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that this was designed for bio-warfare agent, but it was a gain of function. It's, the evidence is so clear. It's beyond, beyond clear. It's irrefutable. Right. I mean, they, they've got HIV proteins in there that never exist in nature. And it got 
and the, the the spike protein it's all it, it, the 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 envelopes it was just all done and you can look it's very if you if you get into the molecular biology and genetics of it it's really really clear and it, it, it i mean you could read this stuff for hours the, the, all the specific details but it, but the summary is it's very clear it's gain of yeah. function research you went in, in the book and you shared multiple references on even the wet market nearby getting cleared that was all tested no trace of anything like this and the evolution of a coronavirus to be able to infect humans so efficiently that quickly is so abnormal. And you go and break down so many different pieces of this. And I want to share a little snippet from one of these emails, because again, gain of function is incredibly dangerous. Like that, it, it's, it's a loophole around getting something that is illegal. It's, it's outlawed by international law. Isn't it right to create no, I don't know that it's te I do technically it's not outlawed. The research isn't, at least I, uh, is by but the creation of biological weapons is what I'm saying. Yes. Because that's what yes. they're doing in a roundabout yeah, that, way. That is outlawed. That was, it was, that was the, the whole legal framework for that was developed by Francis Boyle, who mm -hmm. is a uh, professor of emeritus law. And that law. who you that's why just I referenced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you talked to the guy. Yeah, yeah, he wrote it. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're the guy, you know, that's why you're the guy. So listen to this. So this is one of the emails from Fauci. And we don't like to name drop here. We don't like to make these people more famous. But at this point- Who doesn't know Fauci though? <laughs> yeah, at this point, truly, um, we're, we're not just talking about people. We're talking about larger entities that we really need to take a good mm -hmm. look at so that we can make sure this doesn't happen again. Now, this was from an email correspondence with Fauci's deputy, Hugh Auchincloss. And Fauci says to Auchincloss, quote, read this paper as well as the email that I will forward you right now, end quote. Now, Hugh Auchincloss replies to Fauci saying, the paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain of function pause, but have since been reviewed and approved by NIH, unquote. Now, he says that this gain of function research was on pause. Not that we ended this it's just pause. No, that's not disputed. That was definitely, they did that. The NIH funded it. And I forget when, it was like 2014 or 15. And then they put it on pause because they got at this lapse of consciousness, you know, of, uh, you know, th that they shouldn't be doing this. And then, then it went right back, back forward. I think it was, I can't remember. It might've been during the Obama administration where they re restarted the funding for it. That's crazy. So we're, we're, we've got folks in labs who are making viruses more infectious, mm -hmm. more, more deadly, more virulent, more deadly, to find a way to stop them in case it happens. But the issue is we're dealing with humans and human error. So this oh, yeah. is probably, this is more likely what we're dealing with here and looking at. And you cite in the book how the Wuhan lab had all of these issues prior that were noted yeah. by multiple countries that this type of work is, is probably gonna end badly coming out of this particular location. Yeah, so it's the biosafety labs, I forget this, BSL, biosafety labs, I think is what it's called. It categorizes them by one through four. And I think that the Wuhan virologist was a category four. I think it's the only one in China that I just read earlier this week. They're, they're planning on having 25 more. I mean, it's just China is. We've got plenty in this country. We've got probably more than 20. We have hundreds actually from one to four. One to four. Uh, but plenty category four. Fort Detrick is the primary one, and that was the the BSL lab that was responsible for the anthrax, where all that the, the anthrax scare came out in two thousand one. Yeah. Um, but the, the, there's 
it's very common for these outbreaks to occur. Right. I mean, this even is, swine flu. There's good evidence that human error is involved there as well. Yeah, yeah. Swine flu. That brings up another one. We get to talk when we talk about the jab or the vaccine. Let's t let's talk about it. Let's yeah. talk so about swine it flu instant. vaccine. Yeah, you're probably, I would say, not old enough to remember that. That was in the late '70s. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't a thought yet. Yeah. <laughs> so that it was interesting because there wasn't as much brainwashing in the media. They had some more credibility <clears throat> than they do today. And you could think of C CBS News, which is just a total propaganda machine now. Uh, probably for the last 20 years. But at the time, in the mid-70s, they had Mike Wallace with 60 Minutes. And they did a really epic piece that is still a big... You can find it on YouTube. They, yeah, we'll, we'll play it for everybody. The flu season is upon us. Which type will we worry about this year? And what kind of shots will we be told to take? Remember the swine flu scare of 1976? That was the year the U.S. government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer that could spread across the nation. And Washington decided that every man, woman, and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. Well, 46 million of us obediently took the shot. And now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to three and a half billion dollars because of what happened when they took that shot. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death allegedly triggered by the flu shot. We pick up the story back in 1976 when the threat posed by the swine flu virus seemed very real indeed. This virus was the cause of a pandemic in 1918 and 1919 that resulted in over half a million deaths in the United States as well as 20 million deaths around the world. See how easy it is Thus, the U.S. government's publicity machine was cranked into action to urge all America to protect itself against the swine flu menace. Influenza is serious business. During major flu epidemics, millions of people are sick and thousands die. Well, this year you can get protection. The vaccines are safe, easy to take, and they can protect you against flu. So roll up your sleeve. Protect yourself. One of those who did roll up her sleeve was Judy Roberts. She was perfectly healthy, an active woman, when in November of 1976, she took her shot. Two weeks later, she says, she began to feel a numbness starting up her legs. I joked about it at that time. I said, I'll be numb to the knees by Friday as it, if this keeps up. By the following week, I was totally paralyzed. So completely paralyzed, in fact, that they had to operate on her to enable her to breathe. And for six months, Judy Roberts was a quadriplegic. The diagnosis? A neurological disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS for short. These neurological diseases are little understood. They affect people in different ways. As you can see in these home movies taken by a friend, Judy Roberts' paralysis confined her mostly to a wheelchair for over a year. But this disease can even kill. Indeed, there are 300 claims now pending from the families of GBS victims who died, allegedly as a result of the swine flu shot. The rationale for our recommendation was not on the basis of the death of uh, a single individual, but it was on the basis that when we do see a change in the characteristics of the influenza virus, it is a massive uh, public health problem in this country. Dr. David Sensor, then head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, is now in private industry. 
He devised the swine flu program, and he pushed it. You began to give flu shots to the American people in October of 76. October 1st. By that time, how many cases of swine flu around the world had been reported? There had been uh, several reported, but none confirmed. There had been cases in uh, uh, Australia that were reported by the press, uh, by the news media. There were cases in... Uh, none confirmed. Did you ever uncover any other outbreaks of swine flu anywhere in the world? No. Now, nearly everyone was to receive the shot in a public health facility where a doctor might not be present. Therefore, it was up to the CDC to come up with some kind of official consent form, giving the public all the information it needed about the swine flu shot. This form stated that the swine flu vaccine had been tested. What it didn't say was that after those tests were completed, the scientists developed another vaccine, and that was the one given to most of the 46 million who took the shot. That vaccine was called X53A. Was X53A ever field tested? Uh, I, I can't say. I would have to. Uh, it wasn't. I don't know. Well, I would think that you're in charge of the program. I would have to check uh, the records. I haven't uh, looked at this in some time. The information form, the consent form, was also supposed to warn people about any risks of serious complications following the shot. But did it? No, I had never heard of any reactions other than a sore arm, fever, this sort of thing. Judy Roberts' husband, Gene, also took the shot. Yes, I looked at that document. I signed it. Nothing on there said I was going to have a heart attack or I'd get Guillain-Barre, which I'd never heard of. What if people from the government, from the Center for Disease Control, what if they had indeed known about it, what would be your feeling? They should have told us. Did anyone ever come to you and say, you know something, fellas? There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program. No. No one ever did? No. Do you know Michael Hatwick? Yes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Hatwick directed the surveillance team for the swine flu program at the CDC. His job was to find out what possible complications could arise from taking the shot and to report his findings to those in charge. Did you know ahead of time, Dr. Hatwick, that there had been case reports of neurological disorders, neurological illness, apparently associated with the injection of influenza vaccine? Absolutely. You did? Yes. How'd you know that? By review of the literature. So you told your superiors, the men in charge of the swine flu immunization program, about the possibility of neurological disorders. Absolutely. What would you say if I told you that your superiors say that you never told them about the possibility of neurological complications? That's nonsense. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that. I've said that Dr. Hatwick had never told me of uh, his feelings on this subject. Uh, and he's lying. I guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency, dated July 1976, list neurological complications as a possibility? I think the... Uh, consensus of uh, the scientific community was that the evidence relating 
neurologic disorders to influenza immunization such that they did not feel that this association was a real one. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the people that information? Uh, I think that uh, over the, the years we have tried to inform the American people as, as fully as possible. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic piece because it was a really great piece of investigative journalism. But anyway, I believe, I think it might have been Ford that was the president during the time. I, I think it was, but I could be wrong. It might be, might be Carter. Um, but they had this epidemic of swine flu. And they were really nervous that millions of people were going to die. So the president uh, or the government authorized the, the, and encouraged the use of everyone getting this vaccine. And about 50 million people got the vaccine. Mm. Now, this was in the late 70s, I think 76, 77. And this was years before they passed the, the 1986 acts, which, which essentially provided liability from Im, immunity from prosecution from the vaccine manufacturer. So there was, they were still liable, but they said, no problem, the government will pick up the bill. If there's any problems, we'll pay for it, right? This is an important point. So they did. Now they, they had a, immunized 50 million people and then they stopped it. Because how many people do you think died from it? How many? Tell me. 50. 50 people. 50 people. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but it's still 50 people. Yeah. And there were, I, I think, hundreds, if not thousands of people came to develop neurodegenerative diseases like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is happening now from the, the swine or the uh, COVID jab. So 50 people died. And you know, what did the government do? They stopped the program. They immediately stopped the swine flu immunization program paid out over three and a half billion dollars in damages. The government oh. paid taxpayer money. Right. All right. And if you watch that 60 Minutes interview with, with 60 Minutes, I mean, he did an, an enormous job of investigative journalism and really chastised the people in the CDC and the people who were in charge of this and just showed how fraudulent the whole thing was. All right. So that was 75. So fast forward at like 50 years, right? Just about 50 years. <laughs> Look, very different. We have this threat and this immunization program comes up mm -hmm. out, this shot. They, as, as we're taping this or recording this, we have 6,000 deaths reported into the VAERS database. The VAERS database is notoriously underreported. Estimates are from 99 to 90%. So that means not 6,000, but 60,000 to 600,000 deaths. Hmm. Do you think they're stopping the program? No. Wow. You know what they're doing? They're bribing the public. They're giving lotteries of yeah. $5 million to get the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Here in California, it's like... 100 million in, in lottery and, and, and gifts and all yeah, these different yeah. things. Yeah. And the government's paying, interestingly, about the same amount that they, they want to pay in damages for the swine flu. Three and a half billion dollars is being paid by the government, taxpayer money, for commercials for the COVID jab. Because pharmaceutical companies can't legally do ads for it. It's not FDA approved. That may be the case. But there's loopholes. They use, like you talk about yeah. in the book as well, they use marketing firms to be able to do, yeah. do the work for them. So this is important to know, and we can go into a lot more details. I believe I'm well studying on the vaccine, so I can, I can tell you them 
molecular biology of the concerns why this is such a tragic thing. Because it's, there is no question, there is not a micro doubt in my mind, this will it inevitably kill far more people than, the, than COVID ever did. Mm. There's no way. And it is, we've already had the 6,000 to 60,000 at a, at a bare minimum, maybe over 100,000. And that's acutely, but we're talking at, that's acute deaths, but then you've got near, near term, which is going to come this fall. You're going to have another wave of people dying from it. And then the long-term deaths, because this is a, a prion disease. They're, they're, this, this, they are injecting, this injection is essentially a metabolic poison, probably worse than vegetable oil. And they're causing your body to continue to make it. They're giving your body a set of instructions to make a toxic protein. Okay. Do, do, do they think they, they think that SARS-CoV this coronavirus or COVID protein, not COVID protein, the corona, the coronavirus spike protein is a poison. Why would you want to put it in your body? Let alone give your body instructions to make this thing, maybe for years, if not the rest of your life. We don't know. That's the thing. We don't no know. No one knows. No one knows. But we, there's this sense of certainty out there in the media and with health professionals that well, we know. It's because it's all been engineered. 100% this is an engineered process. And, and you know, why did we have this pandemic? There's some really strong, compelling arguments. The only intention for it was to get everyone to take the vaccine. That was the purpose. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Our microbiome plays major roles in regulating our metabolism, literally playing a role in determining how many calories are absorbed from our food, for example. Our microbiome also controls so much about our mood, with the vast majority of our body's serotonin being produced in our gut. And our microbes interact with these enterochromaffin cells and enteroendocrine cells that produce our hormones and neurotransmitters in our bellies. And one of the biggest issues we're seeing today is gut dysbiosis, where friendly microbes are getting overrun by opportunistic bacteria. One of the few amazing sources of nutrition that's been found clinically to reverse gut dysbiosis is highlighted in a study published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. It discovered that the traditional fermented tea called pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. Another peer-reviewed study published in the journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called diabrownin found in traditional fermented pu'er has remarkable effects on our microbiome as well. And the researchers found that diabrownin positively alters gut microbiota and directly reduces hepatic, aka liver fat, and reduces lipogenesis which means the creation of fat. Pu'er is absolutely amazing on so many levels, and it's also a powerful adjunct to any fat loss protocol because it's been found to support fat loss while protecting muscle at the same time. And this was documented in a recent study featured in Clinical Interventions in Aging. Now the key is the source of the pu'er matters a lot. And the only pu'er that I drink uses a patented cold extraction technology that extracts the bioactive compounds in the tea at cold to low temperatures for up to eight hours. And this process gently extracts natural antioxidants and phytonutrients and preserves them in a whole bioavailable form. 
and this is the purest way to extract the phytonutrients for maximum efficacy. This pu'er is also wild harvested, making it even more concentrated in the polyphenols that we see having benefits in those clinical trials. Also, triple toxin screened for one of the highest levels of purity, tested for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic molds, and making sure that it is not in your tea, which is common in most other teas. This is why I'm a massive fan of Peak Teas. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A.com forward slash model. And you get 10% off their amazing fermented pu'er and all of their other incredible teas. These teas are in a league of their own. Their pu'er is amazing. I'm a huge fan of their ginger tea as well. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. Again, you get 10% off everything that they carry. One of the best investments in your health, supporting your microbiome, supporting your metabolism. It is absolutely amazing. Head over to peaktea.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. So around the 19, mid 1970s, swine flu hit the scene. The mm -hmm. vaccine hit the scene shortly after. Then it was stopped after just 50 folks lost their lives mm -hmm. and eventually uh, panned out to be a couple hundred mm -hmm. who lost their lives in association, billions of dollars paid out. Now we've got thousands of people who've lost their lives in association with the vaccine. And well, I yet, don't call it a vaccine, the injection, okay, COVID the injection. mRNA injection. Yeah. And everything is rolling as strong as ever. Mm -hmm. And there's no, I think a big issue and why I'm so grateful to have you here is that we don't have that other reference point for folks to realize that, yeah, wait a minute, there is a risk associated with this. But I think folks, before we get back into the vaccine, they're more concerned about the risk associated with COVID versus the vaccine. It's just like, well, if I can mm -hmm. reduce my yeah. risk. So talk invisible, about that. Invisible boogeyman. So, and that's, and there's, if you're a rational, logical individual and human being living in this 21st century in the United States, then that's a that's a an understandable response because they've been brain you've been brainwashed. Everything you hear on conventional media is to drive one of the most powerful limbic responses in your body, which is fear. Everything supports that. That's why you're afraid of this. They know what drives you to action. It's fear, the most powerful limbic emotion. So that's why you're afraid of it because you've been brainwashed with propaganda. You have not anything and anything. Anything that counters that narrative is removed. It's censored. It's eliminated. And if you do it persistently, then you're deplatformed. You're buried. Those, those, that information that you need to tell you the other side is absolutely suppressed. You cannot find it in the search, the Google search engine, which is 92% of the searches on the planet are Google. If anything that, that, that supports telling a different view, you cannot find it. It doesn't exist. It's the perfect strategy because it used to be the best search engine on the planet. And it still is for many searches. It provides incredibly useful, powerful information that can change your life. But when they want to promote something, they manipulate it in a way that essentially continues with the brainwashing. Mm. So the same thing, as you mentioned, and we can get into the, the censorship of information in a moment. But I want to talk about some it's of the important. data. Not, not, this, is, this is important, of course. Yeah, it's not, and it's not because of individuals that are, it's just the information, right. the truth is suppressed and you can't find it. Yeah. So again, you just said it, rational, 
concerned citizen here in the United States, being exposed to what we're exposed to, we would obviously lean towards, let me get this vaccination because it's going to protect me versus this very virulent thing. But in the book, you really bring forth the, the real numbers on this. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because, so for example, the risk and where this is really being pushed, even in younger populations, the risk there is substantially lower than what the environment would lead us to believe. Yeah, and if you carefully review even the propaganda, they'll, they'll they won't deny that. They'll right. they'll you're right. But it's it's phrased in a way to confuse you. But there, there's there's very little risk for for younger people and 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 certainly children. And this is there are so many crimes against humanity being committed here. To, to have Fauci say that he, by the end of the year he wants kids six months and old being injected. When there is virtually no risk, there may have been a hundred, maybe two hundred kids in the entire country that have died from this. I mean, it is so far down the list. I mean, there's like twenty more higher causes of death than that. It's a non-significant issue. The odds are, you know, it's all about a risk to reward ratio. What's the risk? What's the reward? The risk is almost insignificant from the disease. The reward or the benefit for protecting it is almost non-existent. So why would you give them what's the risk of the of the injection? It's enormous. It's crazy. It's through the roof. It, and, and they can't, they have no evidence, no proof. There's never been any safety study. This is, this is, they divide vaccines in a number of different categories. And this injection that they're calling, that they classify as a vaccine, which it isn't, but it is in the category of an unprecedented vaccine. That means it never existed before. Others examples of that would be HIV and malaria. Okay. So the normal, and this is well established, this is right in the literature, right? Normally it takes 12 to 15 years to bring an unprecedented vaccine to market. 12 to 15 years. They did this in less than a year. There's virtually, there are no safety studies. There are fake safety studies that have been destroyed because even the fake safety studies that they did had, they, they canceled the controls. So they don't exist anymore. They, they're burying the evidence so that they, they can't ever claim that they knew. Uh, and even in these fake studies that they used, there were no pregnant women involved in the trial. None. Zero. Why? Because that would be foolish. Why would you ever think of exposing a pregnant woman to some experimental process, right? You couldn't do that. You couldn't do that in all good conscience, right? But what did they do like a month ago or so? CDC came out and said, oh, we want, we think, we think the risk outweigh the benefits or the rewards, the benefits outweigh the risk and all pregnant women should be given the COVID jab which causes a lot of premature deaths and, and, and um, miscarriages. The question would come up, how would pharmaceutical companies do this? Why would they do something like that? That's, we should have laws against that. Well, here we've we got should, Johnson we, and Johnson. It's called the Nuremberg Code. We'll, we'll put this up for everybody to see on the screen, but here we've got to report Johnson and Johnson and three other companies close in on a $26 billion deal on opioid litigation. Mm -hmm. We've got Johnson & Johnson to pay more than $2.2 billion to resolve criminal and civil investigations. This was reported by the Department of Justice. We've got another report from the Department of Justice with Pfizer to pay $2.3 billion for mm -hmm. fraudulent marketing. And that's the 
largest healthcare fraud settlement in history of the Department of Justice. Then we've got Pfizer paying about 75 million over illegally testing drugs on Nigerian children. We've got Pfizer paying uh, over a billion dollars to settle uh, PrimPro for causing breast cancer in women. We've got study after study after study. They're criminals. They're, ap they're, they're convicted criminals. These are criminal organizations. Why would you, would anyone, it's rational, believe that these criminal organizations have been, who have you, have you just cited billions of dollars in, in awarded fines and penalties for doing this? Why would we believe them? They're, you know, it's, it, they look at this as just a cost of doing business. Yeah. And I, I believe Pfizer is targeted to make somewhere between 25 and $30 billion in right. 2021. Just alone, just them alone. Yeah. The yeah. entire market, they're looking at a, at least $100 billion yeah. for all these different companies. So Johnson & Johnson's, quote, debt that they got to pay for the opioid crisis they contributed to, they're just going to wipe that right from their, from their ledger with these vaccines and without liability. And that's the big thing. Yeah, well. and they did. They, they, there's actually several cow. layers of it. They had the 1986 Act, which provided them immunity, but then they then they got in. I think the Prep Act, which further insulated them. I mean, they, you just can't. There's, there's, there's. You have no resource. There's a woman who who was uh, read about who who nearly died from the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Had a whole wide variety, of, and she's going to be permanently crippled. Million dollars, a million dollars in medical bills. She has to pay for it. That's crazy. She has to pay for it. That is so crazy. You know, when you think, when you hear about a single individual, think about it. You, your, your, your relative, your loved one comes down, with, almost dies and has a million dollars in bills. No liability, nothing. Just so they could make a hundred billion dollars. Yeah. The worst part about this, and it's a consistent behavior. So I just shared some of the reports. There's yeah. so many of these is how difficult it is. And these are the, these are the rare moments. Mm -hmm. These are the one in 10,000 or one in 50,000 where they get caught because it's so hard to prove that they committed a crime mm -hmm. because they've got the most powerful legal team on planet earth who are able to really sweep so much of this stuff under the rug that you never even hear about. And so when I'm sharing these big numbers and billions of dollars, it's literally the cost of doing business. It's scraps to them. They put it into their accounting like, yeah, we're gonna kill some people. It's all good, but we're going to focus on getting these drugs into as many people's body as possible. And with vaccines, it's really a cash cow because there's no liability. So they already had some uh, uh, immunity, but now with the PERT, you just mentioned, is it PrEP? I'm sorry, with the PrEP, now they have further immunity. And I think it's until like 2024 when any kind of litigation can even be tr attempted towards any kind of harm that they've done. And you just mentioned this. So We've got at least 6,000 folks have lost their lives. People need to know that. And that's right now. Yeah. We're not even- At into, least. We're not into the summer yet. <laughs> and that's not even talking about the injuries. Right. Potentially devastating. And you the know? deaths to come in the fall yeah. and, and a lot down of, the road. And this is what I want to ask you about next. There's actually two things. So let's talk a little bit about the, because you keep on hesitating and sh shifting away from calling this a vaccine. So let's talk about what it is. And let's talk a little bit about what it can potentially be doing in our bodies, because I know that there's new data is now out that the spike protein appears to be a big causative agent in the negative reactions in the first place. And this is causing your body to make that spike protein. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what the whole issue is about. So 
Um, well, it's in, as everyone's heard of it, it's messenger RNA. There's two different versions: the the Moderna and the Pfizer version. Then the Johnson Johnson is a different. It's it's a a essentially is a is a genetic instruction set, but it's administered through an adenovirus vector. So it's a little bit different. Some people thought it's safer, but it depends on your your clinical history. It could be a lot more dangerous, a lot worse. But essentially, there. You know, they've changed the whole definition because this would have never been considered a vaccine. It isn't. It, it is. It is a gene treatment, and essentially, messenger RNA is is similar to DNA, except it's uh, there's a, some fine differences. But it's essentially, the instruction set that is generated by the DNA to cause your body to make specific proteins. You know, it's not just spike proteins. It's every protein in your body is made through this process. But this messenger RNA is very fragile, highly fragile. And these, many people know these vaccines had to be refrigerated, like really cold temperatures, colder than it was at the poles, and because it's so perishable. But this spike protein that they're causing your body to make the spike protein, it's not the same protein that the SARS-CoV-2 makes. Right. It it's not. It, it can't be. It's not. Yeah. Hardly anyone understands this. They engineered it. This is a genetically engineered, similar to SARS-CoV-2, but completely different. How is it different? Well, at the most fundamental level, there one of the, there's four nucleotides in messenger RNA or RNA in general. One of them is uridine. It's a substitute for thymidine, which is in DNA. The, all the, the other three are the same. So they took this uridine. They swapped out all the uridines in this RNA to pseudo methyl no, or methyl pseudouridine because it's more resistant to breaking down by these RNAases, RNAases, these enzymes that destroy RNA. So totally different from that perspective. But here's another one that's perhaps even more important. The spike protein, one of, one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is it attaches to this receptor in your cells called ACE2. And when it attaches, it kind of knocks it out of commission, which causes a lot of problems in your body. Just when you have the regular SARS-CoV-2 protein, it goes, the spike protein, it goes in, attaches to the ACE2 receptor, and then it collapses, the protein collapses, and it gets engulfed into the cell, and it causes its own challenges. But this engineered one, they substituted two different amino acids, two prolines, which makes it really firm and rigid, so that when it attaches to the ACE2 receptor, it doesn't collapse. It just stays open essentially knocking out that ACE2 receptor, which radically increases its, its toxic toxicity and damage. Increases to think, like, things like primarily uh, clotting disorders, blood clots, uh, like ITP, idiopathic thrombocytic purpura, and, and all these other clotting challenges that really lead to many of these complications like strokes um, and can cause uh, heart inflammation, myocarditis, a whole variety of other things. But anyway, this, so this spike protein gets set in and then you would think, well, no, you know, it's going to just come in and make it and it disappears. No, we have no idea how long, no one knows how long it is. They're guessing six months, but because it's so genetically modified, it may stick around for a lot longer in your tissues, continuing your body to produce these spike proteins, but it gets even worse. It gets even worse. Because normally RNA is not transmitted down to your, your progeny, right? But, and so I think there's not an issue, but it turns out that your cells have 
this reverse transcriptase enzymes, which actually converts that RNA back to DNA. And you've got the DNA floating and it gets integrated into your own DNA. So now you have the code in your DNA to make spike proteins that you can pass on to all your kids. If that doesn't want to make you... But that, Dr. McCullough, that's been debunked. No, it hasn't. That's been debunked. It has not been debunked. That is not true. The evidence is really clear. It's in, there's, there's the lo- fact checkers say it doesn't affect your DNA. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's baloney. <laughs> that is absolute baloney. And it's, it's like, this is basic stuff too. It's basic stuff. And it just seems like, again, like it's fact checked as if it's not, even if we talk about, so it doesn't affect your genes. What about all that we know about epigenetics and epigenetic influences? Of course it yeah, affects yeah. But it. But that, that could be, well, I mean, there, there can be huge epigenetic influence, but this is at the genetic level. Yeah. It's, well, it's just every, every single level, there's, there's things that we know that are just being ignored. Mm-hmm is my point. And so with, with this being said, and the, the big takeaway here, and I just want to reiterate this, we don't know long-term. We, don't, we, we simply don't. It doesn't exist. There's no long-term evidence. And this getting pushed to market so quickly with this emergency use access, something that was also put in very recently in a litigation to be even available for the public to do in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. But so now, you know, there's a major campaign, a lot of folks just trying to get back to some form of life again, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to see their loved ones, to be able to, to yeah. work. But now, and you know this very on, and you've even shared data on this, prior to the vaccine even being in existence, it was leading towards making it mandatory, making it so that mm-hmm. you're going to need this quote, passport in order for you to travel, in order for you. And it seemed even when it was all happening, when it's coming out, a lot of people in the health space were like, nah, that would never happen. You know, they would never require you to do that just to go to a concert. But yeah. it has, it's unfolding like that. It seems to be. I think there's, thankfully, there's been some very, I don't know if the best term progressive, but open-minded governors in the United States. There's been 11 that actually have passed legislation, Florida being one of them. Not California, where you live, where yeah. they ban these vaccine passports. Yeah, so that's put a, I think, an unexpected hurdle in their face, and I don't see it rapidly going forward. I was really concerned and dismayed that it was going to, but it looks like it put a real hurdle in their path, and it doesn't seem to be going like we thought it was going to going to, which is good. It's one good thing, yeah. but I want to get back to the the issue with the the, the financial incentives. And the drug companies. Well, you got to wonder, because this gets into the deeper reasons. And I didn't really appreciate this until recently. Who owns the drug companies? Who owns the drug companies? Like no one knows this. There's two organizations that owns the vast majority of everything. Do you know what those two organizations are? BlackRock and Vanguard. They own almost all of it. So then who's behind BlackRock? That's, that's pretty much it's a public organization so you can see who those people are. But one of the biggest shareholders of BlackRock is Vanguard. That's private. We don't know who those are. But those people in Vanguard, those are the people that are calling the shots. That's behind this whole mess. Because yeah, these drug companies are making money, but who collects the money? Mm-hmm. Who collects the money? 
you know, it's not like there's Mr. Pfizer is getting a bit, <laughs> Mr. Right, Moderna, right. you know, so it, it's owned by these other organizations. And now Gates is clearly one of them. There's no question. I mean, he's, for, fortunately, he's been being in the process of being exposed. His halo has, is rapidly disappearing as is Fauci's. He's being exposed. So, I mean, his divorce didn't help. Yeah, Bill and and sort of Melinda Gates Foundation now it's going to yeah it's well I think that that may have been a strategic move on his part to transfer the halo to, to Melinda yeah and and save what his strategy was one of the most revealing things that I took away from your book like I, I didn't know the magnitude and you really broke down because obviously we know you know, Bill Gates is being like, we just think he's just a super nerd who's like s smart and, yeah, yeah. you know, he's, he's got his sweater vest on, he's behind computers. But there was a shift that took place and he became really big in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. But you detail all of the financial benefits that likely encouraged that change to take place in the very beginning. Well, it's, it's a very effective strategy. You know, I live in a place in Florida where John Rockefeller spent most of the end of his life and he wound up dying there, literally about a mile from where he lived. And he was absolutely villainized even more than Gates was. And I'm talking about Gates pre-2000, you know, like when he was running Microsoft and he was uh, on trial by the Department of Justice for things. And you can just watch his testimony. It's just, it's virtually no one like that guy. But then he followed the strategy of what Rockefeller did. And they were pretty similar. And it's a very effective strategy is to become a philanthropist. And, you know, ostensibly donating these massive amounts of wealth and changing the perce the public perception. And you're right. What you said is what the view that most people have. Because after two decades of doing that, it really was effective. But when you dive deep into what he's doing, you'll see that many of these ostensibly philanthropic humanitarian benefits are only for his benefit and wind up killing tens, hundreds of thousands of people or he's had these immunization programs in, in India or Africa that decimated the population. And I think I'm pretty- He's essentially been like outlawed. Yeah, he's been places. banned. He's been banned. It's just, it's so crazy. People have no idea about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, it's, it, so aside from the Vanguard and BlackRock, there's two- this is a tangent to the reason why people don't know, because there's two advertising agencies, Publicis and Omnicom, that have like 90, 90 over 95% of all the advertising runs through them, which controls in large part what you're hearing in the media. So if you've got two big organizations running everything, you know, it's, this is the epitome of centralization, which is just a tragic disaster. When you put all the power in one place, you can't have anything but a bad effect. And unfortunately, that seems to be the tendency and the trajectory that most countries and, and, and sources of power kind of go to. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why we get into this. I mean, we have such a massive financial bubble that's going to explode and collapse at some point because it's all centralized. All these central banks in the world, you know, there's printing money like there's there's no end in sight. And you can do that for a while, but eventually it just collapses. Yeah. So you shared his, you know, using the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation being a great shield for for his wealth and being able to just kind of strategically move money around and also the tax protection, the mm -hmm. list goes on and on. You detail that, 
But the, one of the things that jumped out at, at me, and this is what I want to ask you about, I was shocked to find out how many grants they give to the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't, I, it just like, and then yeah, it just absolutely. all made sense. Like the BBC, the Guardian, and all these relatively- How is that even possible? Like that's, well, how is that even it's allowed? It's tremendous. It's a tremendous leverage. So relatively minor investment, you can control the media and the perception. So they're never yeah. going to print anything adverse to encounter to what Unless, you And do. then you think like all of this stuff is coming out. Then you think also for me, I was just like, what is already strategic? What is What are they allowing for them to put out in the media about yeah. him and his character, whatever? So we've got that piece. And also the pharmaceutical industry invests somewhere around $5 billion a year on major media as well, mm -hmm. at least. Yeah. You know, I, so again, you think, who, who's the controlling are. the messaging? I think it might be, it's, it's called DTC or direct-to-consumer advertising. And I think, I think it's close to 15 or 16 billion on direct-to-consumer. And and then another five or 10 goes to doctors <laughs> to, to, to brainwash them. Now, being a physician, you know, I was part of that process. I mean, I, have to, I haven't seen patients in over a decade. But, you know, when I was practicing, they would come give you dinners and all these bribes and pizzas and everything else to try to influence you. And to give you honorariums or have you speak. I, heck, I was, a, I was a paid speaker for the drug companies in the, in the mid-80s. Mid wow. They used to fly me around. And at the time, I... Focus was on estrogen replacement therapy, which I thought was so great because it was like preventing osteoporosis and stuff. And little did I know that it was just the most crazy thing. It's probably it's killing more people than helping them. So I learned my lesson. I finally understood it a little bit later, well before the more definitive trials were published in the early two thousands. It kind of tore open the fantasy on that that thing. Mm. And you had, had mentioned they that Prempro. I don't know who, who got, but you mentioned the statistics on that one earlier. Yeah, it was got, Pfizer. It Pfizer with a billion yeah. dollars, so. Yeah, you know, and also with Moderna, for example, that's the other one. Most yeah. folks don't realize they've never had a profitable quarter in their history. They've been trying to make vaccines for years. Yeah, yeah. And because of this open, this, this opportunity opening up, they're now, of course, they're on track to make billions and they're turning their first profitable quarter ever. And a little fun fact here, which is not so fun, one of the board members of Moderna, Monsif Slawi, is that right, Slawi? Close, it's not quite, but it's close. I don't he know. resigned from Moderna to head up the US government's project Warp Speed while hanging on to about $10 million in stock options with Moderna. Clearly a conflict of interest here. And now he's just made a, a buttload of money. And more, more recently, Monsef was fired from his position at GSK for sexual harassment allegations. And just like you see this kind of consistent behavior, but also you see folks getting in and government opportunities and just being able to, to rake in a lot of money, basically writing their own checks, mm -hmm. you know? And again, if we look at the actual effectiveness of the vaccine, we talked about this prior to us getting rolling and, you know, the, the title of the paper, and we'll put this for everybody to see on the video and in the show notes, the title of the paper, peer-reviewed journal, Outcome Reporting Bias in COVID-19 mRNA Vaccine Trials, finding that Pfizer's absolute risk reduction is 0.7%. Not yeah. 7%, not 70, less than 1%. Well, they, they claimed it was 95%. Reduction. Right, which, because which they're using the relative, the relative risk. Which is used, that's just a clinical number, right? To kind of really using trial against trial. the same thing with statins too. And so with Moderna, 1.1% absolute risk reduction. 1.1% absolute risk reduction. Absolute risk reduction is your 
risk reduction as an individual in the for, world. But for what? The risk, the, what right. was the risk? The risk wasn't right. of dying. The risk was having less symptoms. Mild symptoms. You have a 1.1% chance of, of mild having symptoms. less symptoms. And yet it's, this is glorified as the, the saving grace, this genius uh, invention by humans all coming together, but it's coming together under the guise that health can be found through this synthetic modality. Matter of fact, new experimented, and I, I'm gonna ask you about this because a physician friend of mine was like, well, this isn't new, the mRNA technology. <laughs> if everybody's not watching the video, you see Mercola's eyes look at me. Is, they said that this is not a new technology. This has been done for years. What do you say to that? Well, it's never been done in humans. Yeah, there you sure. go. That's for damn sure. So, yeah, it's just it's just a nightmare. Because here's the whole thing. We didn't talk about it much, but, you know, there's other than that everyone's afraid because of the risk, the perceived risk, you know, the propagandized risk. Well, you don't have to be because your body is more than able to take care of this thing and effectively. So you can, you can prevent it by being insulin sensitive, which means that what do you do? Well, you use something called time-restricted eating or TRE, where you're not eating more than 12 hours a day. You're eating like six hours a day. You kind of work your way slowly to that. And that just doing that, not even changing the food you're eating will help tremendously. Getting rid of vegetable oils making sure your vitamin D level is good. So, you know, ideally the sunshine, I haven't swallowed vitamin D in over 10 years. My vitamin D level is in the optimal range, but most people aren't going to be able to walk on the beach every day like I do. So then you got to swallow some vitamin D. Take 8,000 units. It's one of the least expensive supplements on the market and you get your blood level tested. So you do those three things, you're going to be immune. So what if you still do those things and you get sick? What the heck are you going to do? Take the vaccine? No. No, there's something called nebulized hydrogen peroxide. That I think I talk about it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my favorite. And, and sadly, there's many, many really good natural medicine physicians who don't really appreciate or understand this, but I think it's the most potent intervention, not only for SARS-CoV-2, but for any viral or respiratory infection. And yeah. even more importantly, if done on a regular basis, can it help, help optimize your gut microbiome. So it's a simple thing. You get a nebulizer. The nebulizer is about 70, 80 bucks. And you've got it, it maybe last a decade or 20 or 30 years. I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's not something you have to buy every year. It's not a big consumable. And the consumable is hydrogen peroxide, food grade, ideally, uh, without stabilizers. And you just, you, uh, you probably pick up a bottle, like a pint for 20 bucks. You put it in your refrigerator and it's good for the whole year. And you just make a little solution out of that to dilute it down because it's, you know, what 12%, like it was 0.1%. It's virtually no side effects. There are no side effects. If you take it at the right dose and, and it, it obliterates the, the virus and, and upregulates your immune system. So you've got this magic bullet that you can use. And if that doesn't work, there's a lot of other things you can use. I mean, if you wanted to use the drugs, hydroxychloroquine, we got ivermectin, but you got other things like quercetin, zinc, melatonin um th those are really powerful let's, let's talk about melatonin yeah how, how is that play into this well it it seems to decrease the inflammatory components and it optimizes your circadian rhythm and taken at the right time so it seems to be a powerful strategy uh and virtually no side effects with that either i mean you can't it's kind of like vitamin b12 you know, the way the way that you die from vitamin b12 is you drown in a bathtub of it <laughs> You just, you just can't overdose on it. So 
I want to make sure that because I, I'm, I'm hearing that the nebulizer might be the, the top thing for you. From my perspective, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've got, so how are you going to do it? And because I've done hours of video interviews on this. And so unfortunately, we were forced to take down the information from our site for some personal threats, but we've got it up on BitChute. So you can just go to BitChute, which they don't censor. And uh, you can just type in my last name, Bercola and Peroxide, and you'll come up with a bunch of videos and show, show you how to do it. Great, that's yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody too. I want to ask you about this because, you know, I, I just mentioned, and again, this is- So you is, don't have to, when well, you do that, you don't have to worry. Yeah. You know, so there's fear. Okay, it's okay to be afraid. It's a totally normal response to what yeah. you've been told. But then you have these tools that can address the fear yeah. far more effectively than anything that the conventional people can throw at you. Yeah, we want people to be empowered. And yeah. you've been such a pioneer in helping us to do that, to yeah. take back control of our health right. is your, is your, is your mantra, you know? That's and, right. you know, I want to ask you about this because I want, I get to ask you, and I'm so grateful to have you here about the things that pop up in people, in people's minds. Mm -hmm. There's a big, we have a real big, I think the biggest issue that we're facing today is missing the point. Like that's the biggest epidemic. And so when we have numbers, for example, I just shared that the absolute risk reduction for the Pfizer vaccine, you as an individual is less than 1%, but we are guaranteed 100% that that vaccine is going to do something to you that you have no idea what's gonna happen. No right? one does. Right, so we, no know, we know this for Can certain, right? to say they have no, have any concept of what it's gonna do. So with this being said, and we know that again, and by the way, that risk reduction is for mild symptoms, not a risk reduction in death, not a right, risk right. reduction in any of that. Or, so, getting, or even getting the infection, which, you know, there's a lot of confusion on that. Now, since the campaign has started, and this is what I want to ask you, we've seen a drop in cases. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you a couple of things, because for me, it just so happens that this is towards the end of like the cold and flu season when all of this is taking place. It's a natural drop. The, the virus being more endemic at this point. Mm -hmm. And also... Is there anything else that like, why is it, because and again, a physician friend of mine was like, well, clearly it's working because the oh, cases yeah, they, have they, dropped. They the same thing with other vaccines too. If you look at the instance of many of these infectious diseases of childhood, the incidence was already down by 90%. They throw the vaccine on there. Oh yeah, it's the magic of the vaccine. Same thing here. But interestingly, it's not the same because if, if you look at the distribution of the cases after the vaccine was implemented, the, the cases actually increased for a few weeks. So the vaccine, the injection, the COVID injection, the COVID jab caused an increase. Mm -hmm. Then it started coming down. Mm -hmm. So it actually made it worse. And also coincidentally, the change in the PCR. Oh yeah, then they changed the definition, right. So all of these things coming together because- But I, I don't think that's- Also, this is observational data too. When we say, okay, this happened. So like clearly this thing is working. That's not clinical evidence. That's observation. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that shouldn't be used to justify our behavior at this point where we are with science. Well, there's another, again, I think that probably the biggest takeaway for me from your book, and I think it should be the biggest takeaway for all of us, is what do we do when we're faced with these kind of challenges? So mm -hmm. you already mentioned some things we do as an individual, but some of the things that were put in place are potentially creating far lasting damage that, not potentially, they are, that we, we don't even know the scale of yet. So yeah. when all of this took place, our constitutional rights, we, we, we gladly forfeited them. Many of us, well, initially, gladly. initially, let me say this, initially for a couple of weeks, you know, we distanced, 
wore masks, you know, stayed away from our loved ones, but then that behavior has been widespread and it's lasted for well over a year. Things are not even, quote, officially opened up here in the state of California yet. So I want to ask you about this, about the things that were Im implemented, you know, the mandates with physical distancing, for example. Mm -hmm. the, the, what are the ramifications of that? Was that the right thing to do? No way. There was no scientific justification for it at all. None. Zero. Nada. Either for masks or for social distancing. Then why, do, why did we do that? Because it was part of the narrative, create more fear. The fear of cells of vaccines or the desire to get the vaccines. So that's part of the whole strategy and, and gradual elimination of, of personal freedoms and liberties. And a shift towards more global tyranny. Mm. You know this as well, because uh, the reason that this was implemented was the, the WHO had some, some influence in this as well. But China shut everything down and their cases plummeted, right? Everybody, nobody, the, the, the cases and deaths just stopped. But they changed their case definition as well. And we changed ours to make cases easier. They, made, they changed theirs for their cases to be harder. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because that was what we used as a reason for to shut everything down. Yeah, it was all engineered. They changed the definitions. They changed the definition of what it And once the deaths started dropping last year, then all of a sudden there was a transition. It wasn't about deaths anymore. It was about cases. Right. And they, they made cases seem like that was the new deaths. And, oh, the cases are up. I mean, we're, you know, they, they just seamlessly transitioned between the two because they were already hyped up about deaths. Deaths were really the only thing that matters. And the deaths were seriously inflated, as we discussed earlier, because they were... It, that there were so many false positives and, and all the comorbidities, even the CDC said 96% of the people who died with COVID-19 had existing comorbidities. So it means only 4%. An average of four comorbidities well, four, four, right, average four and or additional cause of death. Yeah. Right. So and it's not surprising actually, you know, even, even if they were, there wasn't this misrepresentation and a bastardization, bastardization of reality, you're still going to have a lot of that. Uh, but they just exploded it beyond belief. And, and it's all about changing, changing the definitions. Changing from definition of a death to the case, definition of a case, you know, which it doesn't matter. Patients are not sick. And then this whole concept of, you know, the, the asymptomatic positive carrier is a threat. Really, really. And we have to lock them down. It's never been done in the history of the world before. Yeah. We are, you're isolating asymptomatic people. They were only supposed to isolate symptomatic people because that's when you're infectious, when you're having symptoms. Yeah, it's crazy. So what, what do we have to look forward to here now? You know, we've got a lot to change. I believe in miracles. I think it's gonna take a miracle to fix some of this stuff. But... I don't know, it's a big, it's a good question. We don't know. We don't know what to expect other than to recognize that the vast majority, I'm convinced the majority of the population does not agree or believe anything we've talked about today. So that most likely a large portion of your friends, family, and relatives are going to be disagreeing with you and you're going to have to have the evidence, but to just, you know, just to understand that this is really a threat to your personal freedoms and liberties. And that if you really want to understand something, you can go to sites that are more difficult to find, but they're out there. And I'm not certainly not the only one. There's many, many really good investigative journalists who are exposing the truth in a lot of channels where you could find them. So if you're interested, you have to dig a little harder, but it's there. It's just have to look in different places. So ultimately I think 
the solution is going to be a shift from centralized sources of power and finances. So that means things like, you know, because one of the big biggest uh, reasons for this implementation of this whole strategy is, is a shift of the wealth, you know, the transfer of their assets of the world to these, <laughs> but uh, BlackRock and, and Vanguard. So one of the ways that you can limit that personally is to make investments into decentralized resources like uh, like Bitcoin, which is, you know, many people think it's it's speculative and it is there's certainly a speculative nature to it, but at its foundation, it really is one of the only major hopes I see of escaping the financial craziness of the global tyranny. Because there's no other, I mean, that's where they get you. It's all in the finances. So it, it really is a major vote for freedom. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, there's a really, if you, well, but Bitcoin is not something you buy and trade, you know, like you're going to make 10% this week or something. No, it's something you hold for the future. It's like five or 10 years. And, and, and it it's a, essentially allows you that. So uh, to be in a position where you can't be manipulated, because ultimately if they do implement some variant of these vaccine passports, they're going to control that and they're going to encourage your behavior to do certain things. And one of the ways they do this is control with your finances and your bank accounts and stuff. And then they can do that. And if you, and if you have a decentralized asset, they're not able to do that at all. So you're insulated from that. So that's one. And I think ultimately as a derivative of that, and, and I'm very, I've been in, involved with computers for a long time. I've obviously got a very well visited website because I was an early adopter of the internet. When I remember when I first came out with my newsletter, I was pleading with my patients to get my free newsletter. I'll email it to you. Email? It's like 5% of my patients had email. And they, yeah. they thought the internet was useless. But it was so clear to me that that was going to be an incredible resource. And it is. Unfortunately, it's been taken over and sort of uh, uh, captured would be the best term. By, by forces that you know really don't want the good to come out of it. But, but intrinsically, it has a lot to offer if it was decentralized. So I think that's the movement. It's in the process of happening. Uh, even Jack Dorsey has got something called Blue Sky, which is a derivative of Twitter that's, that isn't working on. So but I think ultimately that's going to be the, ca the case. But in my view, just as, it was, just as clear the internet was in, in the late 1990s, it's just as every bit is clear that that cryptocurrencies are going to replace the entire financial system. So, and I know that may sound hyperbolic, but I believe it's true. Mm. And you can't do a superficial assessment of this unless what the media is telling you, like they likely lied to you about COVID. So you'd have to put in like a thousand hours to come of independent study, which is a lot easier to do in crypto than it is in COVID-19. But then when you put in the thousand hot hours, then you'll come to the same conclusion. Anyone who seriously studies, studies it, there's no other rational conclusion that you can reach just because of the fundamentals. Like you can't really go and compress a thousand hours into two or three minutes, but it's there. And all you have to do is study it and you'll come, you'll realize that. So that would be a thing personally that you could do. So because it, it could get a lot worse and it may get a lot worse. Uh, and, and really the finances are key, but to have something that, you know, you can, be insulated from what they want to do to you is going to be very powerful. Mm, right. Yeah. And also insulating our mind is mm -hmm. the last thing I want to ask you about. I want everybody, if anything, you know, the, the degree to which you understand or agree with the topics we've covered today, the, the big thing that I want folks to take away, regardless of our perspective or where we're coming from, 
is to just pay attention to where our information is coming from mm -hmm. and look at who's behind it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, at the very beginning of all of this, the WHO was a big driving force Still is. for the mandate, right, for the, the, the recommendations on how we're handling these things. And can you talk about who's funding the WHO and has so much influence over what's happening with that? Well, it used to be right the now. United States until Trump changed that. And I think Biden put the funding back, but, you know, it was Bill Gates and he's cleverly aligned himself with that organization for like almost the last two decades. So, and the World Health Organization and World Economic Forum, I mean, they're, they're aligned pretty closely too. And even to the current president of the World Health Organization, Tedros, an interesting guy from Libya. I forget where he's, no, it's not, no, it's not Libya, but he did some interesting things in that country. So he, and he's like really the first non-medical professional who's the head of the World Health Organization, which is like crazy. Mm. But he's essentially a, a puppet and a pawn for the, the real people who pull the strings, and Kate's being one of them. You know, because he, he, he funds them either directly or indirectly through a lot of his organizations. Because that's the way he does it. He has front groups. And there's like, there's one front group that he has, which is the Center for Digital Hate. I don't know if you've heard of them in the UK. Mm. Yeah, they've targeted me and 11 others as the disinformation doesn't about vaccines. Mm. So... Yeah, then the disinformation does it. Yeah, I'm the leader. Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the head honcho in that. You're the boss the that boss. everybody meets at yeah. the last level. Yeah, because, you know, you know, the, the, the criticism is that I'm doing all this for the money. Yeah, right. <laughs> so people, yeah, people don't understand. The, you take the up an anti-vaccine position. There's, what do you, what, so you can sell vitamin D, which is the cheapest <laughs> supplement that's on the market. Yeah. You know, it's got, no, it doesn't work that way. You just get criticism hurled at you and, you know, you get deplatformed. De I mean, you only do this if you really care about people. Yeah. Like, why would you want to be controversial? Like, why would you want to? I mean, there's, you can make an argument why you would want to be. I mean, okay, yeah, there be, are some people, not being, yeah. Not being controversial is actually yeah. a good strategity. But yeah. when it comes to life and death. Yeah, right. Which right. I believe this is, is life and death scenario. So, yeah. But I'm willing, you know, I'm willing to, I mean, the people... The average person in this country, we have such a privilege of living in freedom and liberty that most people just don't understand how we got that. They have failed massively to appreciate that. The people who started this country, you know, 250 years ago, most of them escaped tyranny in foreign countries, either themselves, their parents, or their grandparents. Did, and they came to this country to avoid that. <laughs> and when they were, fought the Revolutionary War, the, the leaders who signed up for this thing and signed that Declaration of Independence almost every one of them would have been executed for treason if they lost. I mean, they put their lives on the line for this so that we can enjoy this today. And, you know, we just don't get it. We just, and they're gradually taking more and more of our freedom away. And uh, when they take too much, <laughs> there's not much you can do. So you got to wake up because this is, this is a real threat to, to your, your personal freedom and liberty. Yeah. Well, we thank you truly for paving the way you know, I know that many people consider you a major pioneer and a, a major influence and just created the opportunity for us to even have these conversations, yeah. you know, so I appreciate it so much. And we're definitely going to to take on your mission as well and, and we contribute. It. It is, that's the only yeah. way it works. Yeah. We can stand together as a community and spread the truth because truth will come to the surface, just like it is with the gain of function research. They, you know, I was banned from Twitter from it. I mean, you cannot put a link to my site. Mercola.com on your Twitter account to my account, they 
they said this is like spyware or something. I forget what the what the warning was, but they were one of the only sites in the, in the in whole Twitter universe that they do that to. And it, you know why they did it? Because we were talking about the gain of functional research, which comes out that it was it was true. True. Yeah, that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. We're just yeah, telling they the do, They recently relaxed on the ban, the censorship that was being done on Facebook, for example, when people were talking yeah. about this lab leak theory. Now you know it's just like why was that even put in place in the first place? That's so inappropriate to censor conversation, to censor science. Yeah. It makes no sense. But well, again, it makes sense yeah. when you know the bigger picture. <laughs> right, right, yes. It definitely makes sense. There's reasons for it. But just to empower yourself with freedom of knowledge and information, because it's out there, you just have to search and then you know, form groups and support because uh, you know, we, don't, we don't want to continue to get away with this. Well, I'm glad that you're here on the planet with us right now. And I just appreciate you. And listen, I want to make sure everybody picks up a copy of The Truth About COVID-19. You can pick this up. I was surprised it was at the bookstore, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think, Noble. you know, Amazon, they've yeah. been out of stock for a while. They yeah. claimed that some books got damaged or destroyed or burned or something. I don't yeah, that's know, what I'm saying. I was surprised it was at the bookstore because of the the book burning, you yeah, know, I mean, they because bought 100,000 copies, the which is really unusual before the yeah. launch. So it was definitely a bestseller. Yeah, but well. Even despite all the suppression. Yeah, Dr. McCola, you're a legend. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for stopping by. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. One of the biggest takeaways today for me is truly just to continue to ask questions, to continue to check our biases, and to just pay more attention to investigating where is our information coming from. Because right now we live in a time when we are inundated with data, there's so much information at our fingertips. But number one, we have to ask the right questions. And number two, we have to have, have the ability to actually imbibe the data, to sit with things, to think about them from multiple perspectives and not just take things at face value. Because we need to get away from so much black and white thinking that something is totally wrong or totally right and understand that the world itself 50 shades of gray isn't enough. More like 5,000, 5 million, 5 billion, 5 trillion shades of gray. There's so much in between. And so us developing and cultivating those faculties to not just jump head over heels into one paradigm. Because, you know, believe it or not, Dr. McCola mentioned there can be some benefit seen with certain medicines, you know, earlier vaccines, earlier versions, possibly. But then there's data that's showing that, hey, maybe these weren't even as effective as they've been proposed to be. So we don't have to be so like everything in medicine is terrible or everything in quote natural health is nonsensical and not proven. For me, I just like to come from a place of balance and understanding first and foremost, what, what is the human body? human DNA, what do our genes expect from us? And live from that place because with science being so indefinite and constantly changing, what are the things that we do know? What are the things that got us to this point as humanity that allowed us to evolve such a powerful brain, you know, the prefrontal cortex that's responsible for decision-making and social control and distinguishing between right and wrong and forethought in these parts of the brain that can get bypassed when we're inundated with fear, by the way, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode. 
These are the things that get bypassed, but we develop this incredible brain. What are the things that got us here? What are the things our genes expect? Our genes expect us to eat real food, real things that create the cells of our bodies, that create the cells of our immune system. The immune system is so important right now. Our immune system, our immune cells are made from food. So it's not a matter of this, quote, natural health. It's just normal. That's just human. We shouldn't be in the category of this is a natural health protocol and this is a modern medicine protocol. What it really is, when we're talking about the importance of our nutrition, the importance of movement. Life is movement. Our genes expect us to move. Life ends when we cease to move. Life ends when our cells cease to move. These are not natural health recommendations or health and fitness. This is human. So operating from that place. As much as we, we've evolved, we have not evolved out of sleep. We have not been able to hack that and get rid of it through our evolution because some really important and miraculous things take place during sleep that we just can't get away from. So these are not metrics in natural health versus the medical paradigm. The medical paradigm is a new invention. This is new, but we can garner some value from it as well. But we need a lot more attention to what makes us human impressed upon that system. It needs to pay more attention to what our genes expect from us instead of trying to treat symptoms, trying to treat the symptoms of our lack of real food, trying to treat the symptoms of our lack of sleep, trying to treat the symptoms of our lack of movement, trying to treat the symptoms of our overabundance of stress and our overabundance of the consumption of things that have never existed before in human history. All right. I've had my share of Twinkies. I've had my share of, I was a Chocodile guy. I was a Chocodile guy. All right. My friend lived by the hostess factory. Do you know we go to the outlet? Get 10 Chocodiles for a dollar. All right. We're rolling in the, the cream filling. All right. These things are new. Everything about us, every cell in our body is truly averse to this manufactured, synthetic, man-made madness. But the human body is so resilient, it will do whatever it can to keep it moving. You know, but even the chocodile in the right instance, it can have value, all right? You know, if it was a zombie apocalypse and you come across a chocodile, and you don't got any other food because even the, you know, maybe you're a hunter or whatever. And the, 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 the elk are zombified now. They're zombies too. Like you, you come across a chocodile, can save your life. You know, live to fight another day. But we're not living at that time yet. There's no zombie apocalypse going on. Or is there? Let me stop. All right. So I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Please keep this conversation going. Share this information, have conversations, all right? Make sure that you immerse yourself in, in goodness and people that help you to up-level yourself, that hold you accountable, that help you to think, that drive you to be better. It doesn't always mean that they agree with you, but they respect you. You deserve that. Keep yourself in that environment. Keep yourself uplifted, but be somebody who uplifts. Be somebody who is coming from a place of real human logic of understanding what our genes expect from us, the basic tenets, and making sure that at every step along the way, we're paying attention to those things or we're never going to get past this. 
Right now, it's a time to be more human than we've ever been. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.